0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please also check out my other podcast, Kids Do Have Time to Read Books. I'm on Instagram at Zivi Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Kids Do Have Time to Read. So please follow me, and if at any time you have suggestions, my email is zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front, and they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company, and if you enter the code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check the. I am thrilled to be interviewing Meg Wolitzer, the New York Times bestselling author of The Interestings, The Uncoupling, The Ten-Year Nap, The Position, The Wife, and sleepwalking. She's also the author of the young adult novel, Belzar. And her latest book, The Female Persuasion, was an instant New York Times bestseller and was one of the most celebrated books of 2018. Nicole Kidman is signed on for the film adaptation, which is in the works. In fact, three movies have been made from Meg's books, including This Is My Life, The Wife, and Surrender Dorothy, a former creative writing teacher at the University of Iowa, Writers' Workshop, Princeton University, Skidmore College, and Stony Brook, Willitzer currently lives in New York City with her husband. Hi Meg, it's Ivi Owens from Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming on my show, I really appreciate it. Sure. So I loved your book, The Interestings, even rereading it now, I mean, it just... All those characters are just so lifelike. I could just feel myself like Julie, that shy, awkward girl at Spirit in the Woods camp on the outside of the group. He wrote so beautifully about that period of time. And I'm going to quote, if you don't mind, just to start us off. When a cool camper asked Julie at the Row of Sings to join the group, and you wrote that Julie had looked... At her with a dumb, dripping face, which she then uh-huh. quickly dried with a thin towel from home. Jacobson, her mother had written along the puckered edge in red laundry marker in a tentative hand that now seemed a little tragic. So, that feeling of being an outsider, can you talk to me about that and how you include it in many of your books? But let's start with the interestings.
1: Well, you know, I did go to summer camp when I was exactly Julie's age, which is a total coincidence. And uh, <laughs> I was you know, I'm not her. Look, I'm really not her. And yet, of course, there are some overlaps. I didn't grow up in the household she grew up in. I grew up in a in a in a kind of more sophisticated household. My mother's a writer, my father is a psychologist, and we had a lot of books. So I had a sense of culture and the world, but I still hadn't jumped in yet. And that is definitely where we're, you know, more similar. Julie just had felt that she was growing up in a place where She just sort of had no understanding of the passions or excitements of the world, which included art and big friendships. So she goes to this camp and it all explodes for her to a lesser but still powerful degree. That did happen to me. And it happened in terms of sort of starting to kind of take myself a little bit seriously and have friends who took one another seriously and were fascinated by one another in ways that I do kind of have a little fun with and you know, that they call themselves jokingly, but not entirely. the <laughs> interesting. So we didn't do that. And I didn't really have a group in that same way. But I definitely saw that time in my life as being like an open door. I just felt like I could
0: so relate to that feeling when Julie said if she called her attention to herself by moving in any way, someone might start to wonder why she was there and realize that she had no reason to be there. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) It's like such a painful moment back in that I have twins who are almost 12 and I'm like, I can't believe they have to go through this now. (laughs) Everybody
1: has to go through it. I know, I know.
0: And then in the Female Persuasion, an instant bestseller, which is so awesome, you bring back sort of that sense of wonder at being selected. So like Julie, here you have Greer who gets singled out by Faith at what you call an undistinguished school in Southern Connecticut. And Greer thinks maybe like it's her hair that's attracted Faith to her. But then she thinks that it's because Faith felt sorry for 18, I'm quoting again, for 18-year-old Greer who was hot-faced and inarticulate that night. Or maybe Faith was automatically generous and attentive around young people who are uncomfortable in the world. So I felt like that was the similar kind of thing, the like, why me? Why'd you pick me phenomenon?
1: I think, yeah, that idea of being chosen and having your life open up to you is something that I could write a number of books about in different ways. But what's really different in The Female Persuasion is that it's really an intergenerational story. It's a story not about friendship, but about being seen by someone you admire and having your life open up because of that.
0: I guess there are all these different ways to sort of take what you have and then all of a sudden throw you into some new setting. I mean, it's really neat how you do that in in these different ways already. Thank you. So your mother, you mentioned she's a writer and I actually read what you posted on Mother's Day, the essay she wrote called Today, A Woman Went Mad at the
1: Supermarket. Yes. Yes. I mean, it was the first thing she ever published. It's a short story in the old Saturday Evening Post in 1966. And she's amazing. I mean, really, my mother is just, she's got it. She's 89 and she's just a genius. And I learned so much from her and she's a wonderful writer. You said somewhere that the paper wrote
0: a headline about her, something like housewife
1: turned novelist or something. Yeah, and
0: she's joked
1: that it was like she was Clark Kent going into a phone booth becoming Superman. Like, whoa, a housewife turned into a novelist. How is that possible? This condescension toward women I took very much note of. And I think it really did affect to some degree my novel The Wife that I wrote in 2003, so which was made into a film this year. But I, I've been thinking about all of this for a very, very long time, and, and it appears in different ways in my different books, I think.
0: In the annotated version of The Wife for PBS NewsHour, you wrote that my sense of writing in first person has been that if you're going to write a novel from this perspective, the voice needs to be distinctive. Joan's anger and tart depictions of Joe definitely interested me and seemed best served by an voice. Had I written the book in third person, as I often have done before, I suspect Joan's strong feelings might have been a bit diluted in the telling. So what made you choose the third person for the female persuasion? How did you pick for each of your books?
1: Well, I kind of felt that with the female persuasion, I definitely know that Greer is the anchor of the book, just as in the interesting Jules, who's called Julie at the beginning, is the anchor of the book. But we do go into Ethan's point of view and other points of view. I really, really wanted to go into the mind of this older woman feminist from a different generation too. Those were the two I knew I wanted to go into both of their minds and I didn't want to do, you know, different first person stories. That wasn't the way this was going to be. So with that in mind, because also, you know, in both cases of those books, the Interestings and the Female Persuasion, they go through a lot of period of time, a long period of time, and they have different different characters. To me, the best vehicle was third person. So
0: it's more on a case-by-case basis. Like, do you decide that at the beginning or do you start with your story?
1: I start with an idea of what I want to write about. In the case of the female persuasion, it was what happens to power, uh, female power. And what about the person you might meet who sees something in you and changes your life? Also making meaning in the world and misogyny. All of these things were kind of swirling. And I just start writing and I saw this young woman at college and she has this experience where she's, Groped by a frat brother at a party and she doesn't know is this thing that happened to me legitimate or should I just suck it up? Was it an assault? Her face goes hot. She doesn't know and she needs to find out how to think about it from this famous feminist who's like uh, three steps down in fame from Gloria Steinem who comes to speak at her college who was famous in the 70s. And that's how the characters and the story kind of unrolled. I didn't really know where it was going to go.
0: Do you outline any of your but Like, do you outline anything? Or like what when you start a book, what is your, like, what does your desk look like? Tell me a little more about the process.
1: Well, I start writing just knowing only what I said. And I'll write about 80 pages. And I say 80 pages because that's enough so that you can feel you've accomplished something. But it's not so much that if you end up putting it aside because you don't really know what to do with it after 80 pages, you're not going to feel like your life is been ruined. <laughs> and then I start to look at not what I wanted to do, but what, in fact, I ended up actually doing. And I think there's often a really big difference between the grandiose fantasy of the first draft, of the first attempt, and what you end up doing. And that's the point at which I do start to make something of what I kind of call an emotional outline. It's not really that plot-based, but it does sort of include very important things like this is the chapter where she feels alone. And I then start to look at it. And I think that for me, outlines are kind of like EpiPens. You may never know, <laughs> but it's good to know that you have them. And I always see it that way. I only sometimes will look at that outline. I have EpiPens all over my house and I outline
0: everything I do. So maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Great. That sounds like a good plan. That's the kind of person I (laughs) am. I read, by the way, in this New York Magazine article on you that you play competitive Scrabble, and I thought that was just the coolest. I'm like obsessed with Scrabble, and then I ended up ordering the the board you recommended, the Sam Timer acrylic
1: board you mentioned in the article, so thank you for improving my home. (laughs) Scrabble is so great. I actually wrote a middle grade book for young readers called The Fingertips of Duncan Dorfman about kids who play competitive Scrabble, and it has some Scrabble wordplay to solving a kind of mystery of identity in the book, just saying without giving too much away. But you can see that I love Scrabble so much. I, yeah, I'll write, I'll, you know, I'll write a couple of paragraphs and then when I feel that I can't go any further without having a little sorbet between courses, mm-hmm. that sorbet will take the form of a scrabble game online. And I really I find it gets me thinking about language, the beauty of language, the way letters can jump around, how nimble they are. And I, I, I'm so bad at numbers. Like any number if you put in front of me, it's sort of terrible that I am this way. I mean, I grew up before, you know, the encouragement of girls in STEM fields, but I <laughs> And, you know, I just, letters and words are it for me. I used to create crossword puzzles with Jesse Green, who's now one of the theater critics for the New York Times. But we, I just love words, I just love wordplay. When I was in business school, someone
0: talked about being a writer as starting a company, but the product you're putting out is is words. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like you're the just the consummate, you know, producer of words if you want to look at it that way. And awesome. I'll I'll take that. I'll right. take <laughs> <laughs> Did you always want to be an author? Like tell me about how you got into this field to begin with.
1: Well, because my mother is a writer as you know, She was very, very encouraging to me from a very early age, and I would run home and want to show her short stories that I'd written at school, and she was always very receptive to them. So I loved writing. It was very important to me to write. It was my favorite thing to do. I used to make up short stories and a serial novel on the way to school, and I had a serial novel about the heirs to the Kraft cheese fortune. (laughs) You can see that I never published that one, and there's a good reason for it. But I did want to be a writer from an early age. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think, aside from having
0: a mother to show you the ropes a little or to role model for you, like, what do you think allowed you to, I mean, there are lots of people who grow up wanting to be authors. And aside from talent, was there anything else do you feel like differentiated your journey to make you into like a best-selling author?
1: You know, I don't know. I, I, I read a lot. I've always read a lot. And I think that all writers do. But I had such a, such a desire to do it. I mean, I'd be doing it anyway, even if they didn't pay me. So it's, it was kind of like a full-time thing for a long time anyway, in some way I would, in college, I wrote my first novel and I would sort of sneak away from class. Sorry, mom and dad who paid for that education, but I did get a lot out of it. I would really sneak away from class because there was, there wasn't that much to differentiate the stuff coming in that I was reading and and my desire to put stuff out. They all came from sort of the same source, which isn't to say that my work was in the same category as the stuff I was reading, but just the act of generating was really connected to the act of taking in. So it was very exciting to me to do both. Excellent.
0: What about having a um the difference between your mom being a writer way back in her day versus now? Do you think that experiences allow women writers to flourish more? Or, I mean, obviously it was harder back then, but like how does she contrast her experience to yours? I'm just so interested in that dynamic.
1: It was very, very different. She had parents who did not encourage her To be a writer who didn't think she even should go to college, that it wasn't important for a girl to go to college. So she didn't have a college education. She took a couple of, you know, college classes here and there and some art classes. But she's really pretty much an autodidact, whereas I had a mother like who was like my full time fiction butler. May I see your short story, Meg? You know, Margaret back then. That was just incredible. And when I got older, she would show me her work. We almost had, it wasn't even like she was like, I'm, I'm joking about my fiction butler. It was more that we almost created like a little writing workshop within the house when we were both working on things. And and I think we both were so happy to have that. And, you know, look, that's an unusual situation even today to have a parent or, you know, someone else in the family who is writing. But things have changed. It's still an ongoing battle and struggle to have women's voices count in the same way that men's do. I definitely know that that's true. Who gets heard? Who gets authority? I mean, we have a president who, you know, being, speaking in a loutish voice and saying insulting things to women didn't stop him from, you know, from getting to be where he is. And I think that it's a a long and ongoing path. And writers need to just write the books they want to write and put them out there and never stop speaking.
0: And what has it been like for you having your novels adapted? Like what was it like having the the wife adapted and going to see it and being at the Oscars, that whole situation?
1: Well, it was incredible. I mean, somebody said to me in an interview once, because I had an earlier book made into the film, This Is My Life, which was the first film Nora Ephron directed. And somebody asked me in an interview, aren't you afraid of what they're going to do to your book? And I thought about it. And I said, well, my book's on the shelf. Nothing's going to change that. So I've kind of felt like if you admire the the stuff that that the people who want to do the adaptation have done, and you feel that they are really earnest and desiring to do something new and exciting with your work, you can sort of say to them, go do it. And it's not going to affect your book. But I was very, very fortunate to have such wonderful actors and Jonathan Price and of course, Glenn Close playing the title character and the title role. And that was a very exciting experience. The Oscars was tremendous. The scale was so big. And I learned that there's an open bar at the Oscars. Who knew? You know, you don't see anything like that when you're watching. (laughs) I did every other year. It was very exciting. Sad when she didn't win, but beautiful and exciting all along. An honor to be nominated. Oh yeah, goodness. (laughs) Are you working on another book now? Yes, I am. And I'm just sort of more the beginning of it. So I don't really know how I would describe it yet, but it definitely has to do with family to some degree. And I'm really pretty interested in that, in that, you know, the female persuasion really is about an intergenerational relationship between a mentor and a protege, as well as a boyfriend and girlfriend and friendship. And the Interestings was about friendships, and the wife was about a marriage. This one looks at a family and what happens when you grow up. What does your family look like? Hmm,
0: that's fascinating. Do you have any advice for aspiring
1: authors out there? I do, but it's going to cost you extra. Okay. No, <laughs> I guess one of the things I would say is that to not be hard on yourself when things aren't going as you planned. I mean, I used to feel that way, you know, hard on myself when I wouldn't have a good writing day. It isn't that every day doesn't count, has that for a double negative, but every day does count. But I think we sometimes use days in different ways than we imagined so that I might, if it's not going well, I might read something that I feel the writer was really excited about when he or she was writing it. And that is a different experience from generating something new, but it might help you locate that excitement in your own work, that feeling of love that you first felt when you began writing it.
0: And what about advice for someone feeling like Jules or Greer on the outside looking in, not just as a 12-year-old or a college student, but anyone who is sort of carrying that feeling around that
1: you portray so well in your books? Well, I think that sometimes we feel that way, but to remember that everybody does feel that way. And if everybody feels that way, then who are the ultimate insiders? You know, it's just such a part of life to feel that way. And so much, look, fiction is about often being an outsider. So at the very worst, you can use it in your work, regardless of what your work is. If you're an artist, you can certainly use it. But I guess to understand that we think about ourselves much more than other people think of us. And this notion of being an outsider sometimes isn't really accurate. But if you can explore it as a writer, you can see it from all different angles. Excellent. Well, thank
0: you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and, and sharing your experience with, with the listeners.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It seems like a, a wonderful, wonderful thing that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. All right, take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. MermaidPillowCo.com/slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome, giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.